Hey guys, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, would you? We're going to finish chapter 13 today. Um, if you want a little bit of a, if you like to plan ahead, kind of know where we're going, um, we're going to do finish chapter 13 today. We'll get into chapter 14 next week. We likely won't finish it. Um, the chapter tends to, to be two main topics, really. Um, it would be great to be able to kind of swoop through them and get it all done in one shot. Um, it, it's mostly about tongues and prophecy and orderly worship, but then there's this part at the end that is often misunderstood and can be really dangerous if someone's not handling the scriptures the way it's intended, where it talks about um, women not speaking in church. And so if we skip that next week, um, you guys would know that we're the cowards that we are. So we won't be doing that. But, but what we're going to do, though, is next week we'll be tackling the issue of tongues and of prophecy and, and orderly worship and those things. Um, then the next week is going to be uh, Palm Sunday, so we're going to have a service uh, dedicated to that, and then Easter as well. We'll come back and pick up the, the rest of chapter 14 after Easter, but on Easter Sunday, it sets us up really nicely to begin 1 Corinthians 15, which is probably Paul's greatest and most detailed uh, um, proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the perfect place to be for Easter Sunday, so that's where we're going to be going. Today, we're going to finish chapter 13. And uh, I, I hope you guys have learned some stuff from this. I hope there's been some fresh perspective maybe for some. Like I said, it's a passage that becomes almost too familiar in our thinking. Um, and I think it's good to step back and, and consider it in the context of, of what Paul's saying in the book as a whole and in Scripture as a whole, which I think we've done. Um, but still, I, I can't help but agree with Leon Morris. Leon Morris, who wrote probably the best commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. At the end of this section where he's speaking with regards to love, this chapter 13, he says, I feel as though clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty. And that's much the way that I feel with this. Like there's so much to cover and there's so many things to consider. And I know that if we could just go back and start all over, I could do a better job through the next time, but I would never subject you to that. Um, but but I, I hope we've learned and gained some from it. Today we're gonna be bringing 1 Corinthians 13 to a close. And what we have seen so far, actually let's just read 1 Corinthians 13 together and then we'll dive in. I think it's a better way of starting. And, and we'll start in verse one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. God, I pray that you would just give us understanding of this passage, Lord. I pray that it would be more than an intellectual assent to knowledge, but I pray, God, that your spirit would awaken our hearts to the truths declared within. Lord, that we might worship you not just in song, but in life as we leave this place, that you might grow and mature your church in these very things. Lord, help us to love. Help us to know you. Help us to know your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's what we've seen so far as we've been going through 1 Corinthians. This is a really fast, fast review. The first thing is this. We know that Paul didn't just write this as sort of a throw-in thing on love just because he felt mushy suddenly one day. He wasn't writing 1 Corinthians, which I, I'm really looking forward to 2 Corinthians. i got to be honest with you because we'll be there really soon. 1 Corinthians, though it's a great, rich book, it's been really good for our church to go through. Most of 1 Corinthians, it just, it just is. Most of it is kind of a, hey, knock it off. 
Hey, knock it off. I mean, that's really the theme of the book in so many ways. Second Corinthians is more like, it's going to be okay. It's good. And I'm looking forward to teaching that. You get to a point sometimes where you're like, I want to I I change the angle a little bit. And 1 Corinthians is kind of that, come on, guys, knock it off. Be what you're called to be. Be who you're called to be. And then 2 Corinthians kind of comes in where they're saying, you know what, where you're weak, Jesus is strong. And, and, and where you're struggling, Jesus is there. And he is our sufficiency. When you're at the end of your rope, he's there to catch you. And, and just a really encouraging book. But in this particular book, he's been dealing with very significant issues going on in this church. So a lot of this letter is, it just is, him dealing with big issues in the church. And so when he comes here and he's writing all this stuff to the church, he didn't just one day wake up to finish his letter and the sun happened to be out and the birds were chirping just right and he felt warm and fuzzy inside and thought, you know, I'm going to take a day off from all this stuff and I'm just going to, love is patient. Love is kind. You know, it wasn't like a hallmark moment in Paul's life. Um, He writes this fully within the context of everything that he's been dealing with before. Because, number one, he's considering the failures and weaknesses in the Corinthian church as he writes this. So when he writes to say that love is patient, he's writing that because he knows that the Corinthian church has not been patient. And when he writes that love is kind, he's letting the Corinthian church know, you guys are puffed up and arrogant, you're not kind. And so he writes this passage intentionally to these people because these are weaknesses in their very character. Secondly, he also has in mind that these characteristics that he's writing about are hallmarks of immaturity when they're lacking. So this church in Corinth, specifically with their gifts that he covers in chapter 12, is a dynamic, sizzling, on it kind of church. He actually writes at one point that we'll see in a minute that they had every gift present and they were on it. And yet they were completely full of show-offs and loudmouths and babies. That's what he says to them. And he wants them to grow up. And so he writes this also knowing that not only are these hallmarks of their weaknesses and hallmarks of Christian immaturity when they're lacking, but that these are actually qualities that build up the church. That this is what the church needs, not so much the gifts, not so much the supernatural. The church needs to be built up in the love of Christ, that that's the hallmark of maturity. And and he says to that church as well as to this church, that to to the degree that heritage grows in these attributes, that we grow in the love of God, we are maturing as a church. Um, And and he even says that, that those characteristics, they're unconquerable. That that kind of love never fails. It never falls to the floor. It will never be defeated. And then finally, and this might be the most important thing for us to remember as we go through these things, that when Paul writes this stuff, he has in mind the very nature of God, the very nature and character of God himself. Because he's not just grabbing attributes out of the air and going, it'd be awesome if you were more like this or more like this, but, but he's reaching to God's attributes himself, and he's saying, grow up to be like your father grow up to be like God. He's put his Holy Spirit in you and he desires you to grow to be like him. And so as we know that it's not just something new to them, that this is all time. God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so all the way back in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, he declares his name, his character. And what is it he says? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He's really saying the exact same thing in Exodus 34 when he declares his character that he's saying here in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, that this is who God is. And so he's declaring his name, declaring his character and his nature. And so this is what Paul's writing about. Now, this is a real letter written at a real time by a real man to a real church. And One thing, I've got a picture here. Can we put the picture of the Corinthians manuscript? Here's a a photo of one of the pages of the oldest known manuscript of 1 Corinthians. Um, it's It's not a complete manuscript. It's just part of it, as you can tell by the edges. But if you notice something, when you look at this letter, things were written really differently then than they are now. Um, as you, if you analyze it, you'll notice it's just one block of text. There's no commas. There's no indenting when you get to the beginning of a paragraph. It's all written in one gigantic block. That's how all writing was done at that time. 
And so the scripture that we have, the way it's laid out in our Bibles, is also a form of interpretation, trying to determine which phrase goes which with which, with which thought. Um, so you have a paragraph that might contain a specific thought, and then you have phrases. Does it go in this thought, or is it in this one? Which idea is it? And this, the first phrase in verse 8 of our text today, where it says, love never ends, is one that is argued, not argued about, but kind of debated, I guess, where it actually belongs. Because you got this big block. Is that part of the previous thought? That's the way we looked at it last week. It's the characteristics of love. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love never fails, period, on to the next thought. But that's really probably not the way it actually lays out. The the reason that it's part of a different verse, and if your Bible is laid out with paragraphs, it should be part of a new paragraph, is because it fits best in the context of what we're going to be talking about today. Love never fails. Love never ends. Because the whole idea, as Paul brings this argument about love to a close, and and remember, tied in very closely with chapter 12 where he teaches about the gifts of the Spirit. The whole idea here, as Paul brings all this stuff together, is that the gifts of the Spirit are temporary. They will end, but love will last forever. That's what he's saying. So you look at verse 8. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, it will pass, the, the, excuse me, the partial will pass away. So picture what's going on here. Paul's writing to an incredibly gifted church. As I said before, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, he says, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Like they have it together. If they were a baseball team, they've got all-star gold glove players at every single position. It doesn't seem like there's any weakness in there. And because of that, they've become really puffed up. They've become really arrogant. They believe that their church has kind of reached some spiritual dimension, some kind of spiritual level that others haven't. And then even within the church, the people, based on what gift they have, believe that they've ascended to some sort of level of Christianity. You know, it's like it's a, a rank in a game or something, and I've, I'm now the chess master or something like that. And they really believe that that's what happened. We have ascended to a point that we have arrived. And so they're completely filled with pride, and their strength and all these gifts have become their weakness now. He says, look, you, you have... You are completely gifted in every way. No church is as gifted as you are. And that has now caused your weakness because you've gotten puffed up. And you actually think that you have arrived. Like literally, they're carrying themselves as if they've reached the pinnacle of Christian existence and there's nowhere else to go. Um, Now we know today that there's only one time when we who are Christians will be perfect. And that is when? When Jesus returns, right? Right? The scriptures say, when we see him, we will be what? Like him. When we see him, we will be like him. And until then, 2 Corinthians says that the Spirit is changing us from glory to glory into the image of his Son. So we're being changed into the image of Christ over time. When we see him, we will be like him. So we will only be perfect when? When we see him. But the Corinthians aren't carrying themselves that way. The Corinthians think they have arrived now. They think they've got it together now. They believe that they have it all. There's nothing new to do. They have nothing else to learn and that they are perfect even where they are right now. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 4 because Paul writes to him and he says this. Already you have everything you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And he's talking about this end times, when we're with Christ, we're going to rule and reign with him, and we're going to be like him at that point. But we're not like that now, right? Amen? We're not perfect now. So it's silly for us to carry ourselves the way we tend to do, as if we've got everything together and we have no weaknesses. It's just silly for Christians to do that, because the scriptures make it really clear, you're not perfect. Raise your hand if you're perfect in this room. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Good. We all agree, because it's just true. But, but the Corinthian people were carrying themselves as if they were already in that place. And so Paul says, already you're ruling and reigning? Already you're rich? Already you're kings? And he even says, I wish that you were rich, but, because then we could rule with you. But I guess he forgot us, the apostles. 
That's what he says. The guys who wrote the New Testament, he must have just skipped us on that and went ahead and put you guys in charge because we're not ruling. We're kind of servants right now. We're not in that place. But that's really the way that they thought. The phrase is, if you're a theologian, the phrase is over-realized eschatology. They're living now as if they were already in eternity, already perfected, already a complete work. And they're arrogant about it. They're really puffed up about it. And the reason that they are, notice this, the reason that they're puffed up is because of their gifts. So they look at their giftedness that they believe came from God, but they go, this is evidence of the fact that we have achieved this spiritual level. And so Paul just knocks the legs right out from under them in this chapter. And he goes on to say, look at verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Listen to what he's saying. This is is huge and awesome. He's saying, you guys are looking to your giftedness, your skills, your abilities, supernatural gifts, your talent, your knowledge, all of these things as evidence to how amazing you are. But here's the deal. Even the most gifted among you, it's partial. It's not perfect. The gifts that you have, that you view as evidence of your maturity, they're not evidence of maturity because they're not even going to last forever. They're temporary. When the perfect comes, he says, the partial will pass away. Now, do a little bit of work on this verse really quickly because this is a verse that's highly debated when it comes to the cessationist and the continuist, as we've talked about before. A cessationist is one who believes that the gifts of the Spirit, talked about here in 1 Corinthians, and more particular would be the supernatural giftings of the Spirit, have ended and do not have application to the church today. And a continuationist believes that those things have actually continued on. And so there's debate between those two camps, and this verse tends to be, in a lot of discussions, kind of the pillar or the, the uh, foundation for that argument. And the reason is, is that there are continuations, not all of them, I mean cessationists, but not all of them, but some, who would say, when that which is perfect comes, that it's speaking to the Scriptures, And so when God gives us the Bible and we have the whole of the Scripture, the perfect Word of God, once we have the completed canon of the Word, we no longer have need of the actual gifts of the Spirit. Those are gone now. They've expired. We have the Word of God, and this is what we we live by today. Um, We have people in this very room who are uh, cessationists and who would believe that. And I just want to say, I love you, um, but you're wrong. And... uh, Humbly, I say, at least in this sense, here's what I would say. I, I believe that that angle towards interpretation in this passage is, um, is playing a little too loose with the scriptures because the context here isn't talking about scripture anywhere. It doesn't come up anywhere in there. What it is talking about is that the gifts of the Spirit exist so that we, the church, would manifest who? You know it. Say it out. Jesus It's talking about Jesus. The church has been gifted in the Spirit to manifest Jesus. We have been given certain giftings and ability that we might bring Jesus Christ to bear in the world around us. He says that the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head. And so as the church operates in the world, loving one another, ministering to one another, we do it in such a way that it brings Jesus to life, if you will, before the world around But that's imperfect, that's partial. When the perfect one is actually here, we don't need that anymore. There there doesn't need to be the signs anymore pointing to Jesus when he's there. That's the idea. And so you're saying, but wait a minute, you're saying that those gifts though, those are from the Holy Spirit, and you're saying that they're imperfect? You're saying that they're partial? Yes. How dare you? It's of the Holy Spirit. You can't say that's imperfect. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. No, hear me out. Think this through. Some of the gifts, let's think of even some of the most supernatural gifts out there, gifts of healing, for example. Um, How many people, I'm gonna ask for a show of hands here, how many people in here have experienced, you would say, either you or someone you know who was absolutely healed by God in a supernatural, like, look, God just did that. God just healed them in a supernatural way. How many people in this room would say they, they or they know someone else who? Me too, me too. My grandmother, was, uh, she had lung cancer, and they went to open her up to go do surgery to try to remove whatever they could of the lung cancer she had. We were expecting hours of surgery. All of a sudden, they come walking back out after just minutes, and they said, you know what? We, we opened her up, and when we saw how bad the cancer was, we couldn't touch it. 
So, so we, we sewed her back up. She might live six months. Well, right after that, she got saved. She was prayed for in a church. She went to her scans. They did all the scans, and suddenly they couldn't even find the cancer anymore. She lived for like 17 more years. So I, 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 there's no doubt in my mind. And my grandmother, I told you guys this before, she was a tough little country lady in North Carolina. If you would have told her that wasn't God, she would have punched you square in the nose. At least. But here's the thing. It was imperfect. What? But you... Cancer was healed. She lived for 17 years to a ripe old age. Yeah, but you know what? Today, she's dead. She's dead. She's with Jesus now. And so even though she was healed, it was partial because it didn't deal with the greater issue at hand. Her healing, it was temporary. It was partial. It wasn't eternal. It wasn't dealing with the main issue. I mean, cancer is a symptom of a much bigger issue. Everything we struggle with health-wise is a symptom of a greater issue, and that is when sin entered the world, it brought death and deformity, and it broke things. And so when she's healed from cancer, that is a sign that points to God, absolutely. But she's still under sin. She's still under death. And until Jesus comes himself and finally and forever defeats sin and death, every healing that we do is only partial at best. Just partial. Great and to be celebrated. But they point to something much, much more significant. They're only partial in that way. And so here's what happens. We need to understand where we live. We need to understand as a church where we fit in this continuum. That yes, one day Jesus is coming and he's going to take care of all of these things, but we're not there yet. And so the Corinthian people, they were carrying themselves with a certain air as if they were already there and perfected and had nothing new to learn. And this can happen even today. It was just in the news. It was so heartbreaking and frustrating at the same time because there was a family years ago didn't believe that we should, as Christians, go to doctors or hospitals or medical treatment or anything. And they had a child die by something as stupid as like pneumonia something totally treatable. And because they would not go there and they believed, no, Jesus is the only one, they had this over-realized eschatology, refused even some of the help that God has blessed us with in this country, the medical care we have. Praise God that we have the medical care that we have, amen? But they refused it. And what was the end result of that? Their child died. Theology, just so you know, is important that we get it right. Because we can get it wrong in a way that's really unhealthy for our family. And these people, their child died. And so they were arrested. They went through all this stuff. They were put on probation and all that stuff. And then just last month, it happened again. And I see that and I just go, you know what? That is a product of closed Bibles and empty heads that don't study God's word and understand what it's saying. And that put so much emphasis on certain things that God never intended those to be the hallmarks of who we are. And put too much emphasis on certain things. And it just puts even their entire family at risk. It is heartbreaking to see that happen. And so we need to understand uh, on every level, whether it comes healing or even just knowledge of our scriptures, we're not perfect yet. There's still work in every single one of us for the Holy Spirit to do. And so that means when we interact with one another, we understand, you know what? He just messed up. He shouldn't have done that, but he's not in heaven yet, so I shouldn't expect a ton different. God's still working on him just like he's working on me. We're not there yet. Amen? Say it with me. I'm not there yet. No, declare it loud. I'm not there yet. Okay, so we don't carry ourselves as if we are. But that doesn't mean we just sit around on our hands and stay babies forever anymore either, does it? Not at all. Look what Paul says in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. He says, look, the Corinthians are priding themselves and carrying themselves as if they're this spiritually elite group. And the reason they're doing it is because they're pointing at their spiritual gifts and their giftedness. But the fact that they're doing it is actually pointing out their immaturity. The very fact that you think you've arrived is actually a hallmark of the fact that you haven't. 
we made it. You just proved you didn't. You, you, it's like the person says, I never lie. And you're like, you just did. <laughs> and, that, and that's kind of the case here. They're carrying themselves as if they've made it and their pride pointing at their gifts. See, look at how gifted we are. We're there. And Paul says, that's the very hallmark of immaturity. Frankly, it just proves that you have more work to do and that you need to carry yourselves with more humility. He, he points this out throughout the book. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says to them, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now remember, church that thinks they got it all together and their spiritual father, Paul, writes them a letter and says, you're just a bunch of babies. I wish I could talk to you differently, but you're just a bunch of babies. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, he says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And so here's this church, so gifted, so skilled, so blessed, and so puffed up in themselves that they think they've made it. And he says, stop thinking like a bunch of babies. We're to mature. We're not to stay in this spiritually infant state, and we're not to rely on things that are not appropriate markers of our maturity in Christ, but we are striving by the grace and power of the Spirit towards that completion that will come when Jesus is here. When we see him, we will be like him, he says. And so, but we got to understand, you can't have then now, so you can't go now, no, because of my faith, because I'm saved, uh, affliction won't touch me. And then you get the snake handlers, no, we're Christians, so snake bites won't hurt. Did you hear what happened? Did you hear about that this week? Great timing for this sermon, unfortunately for that dude. But uh, to documentary, TV show, some kind of show on some, everything is stupid in reality anymore. But this one was really stupid and sadly reality. But um, this guy is church snake handler guy, like generations of it. And he's like one of the stars, apparently, of this show on like Nat Geo or the Learning Channel. Did, can we just give up on the truth that we learn anything from the Learning Channel anymore? Shouldn't we just, all we learn is that we live in a messed up world. That's really all that show channel teaches us anymore. But, but so this guy, Snake Handler, oh, I have so much faith that nothing will hurt me anymore. Snake bite died. Oops. But now he sees through a glass clearly, so he's okay now. He's okay. If he was here, he would say, I was way wrong. I was way wrong. But, but that, that's this over-realized uh, uh, over eschatology, thinking that we can have then, now. We live in now. This is where we are. And, and so it's easy, though, let's be real about it. It's easy for us to look at people like that and kind of make fun of them and go, oh, silly, you're dumb. Why, why would you think such a thing? You didn't give your child antibiotics when they were sick. What do you think? It's easy to look down on that. But here's the deal. We can do the exact same thing with just knowledge of the Bible. Because knowledge is one of the gifts. And so we can go into this mentality that says, I know I'm spiritually mature because I understand Scripture so much. And because I know God's Word so well. And yet here's Paul. And he says, I know in part. When I was a child, I put away childish things. I don't think like a child anymore. Now I know in part. Let me ask you, before Paul got saved, when he was a Pharisee, do you think he would have said, I know in part? No way. He would have said, I know more than anybody. But, but now he's humbled. And he's matured in his faith. And now he realizes, you know what? I, I don't know. I know in part. And he writes this in such a way, it's, it's interesting, he's reaching back to the Old Testament again. There's a story in the book of Numbers where Moses, who was the leader of the people of Israel, was uh, facing some, some people who wanted, they were tired of him being in the lead, and they, were, they wanted to attack Moses. We're tired of him calling all the shots, and they're stepping up against him, and, and God comes in with a, I got Moses back. It's like one of the coolest things in the world. As these people are coming up on Moses and stepping towards him, God actually says this, hey, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, or I'll speak to him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you afraid, or why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That would have been so fun to watch. That would have just been so fun. They're like tired of this guy. And they're like, you know what? We got prophets and we got stuff to say too. And we understand some stuff about scripture. And so we're going to take over. And God drops in and he goes, you know, I've spoken to you. Visions, 
riddles, puzzles, yeah, but not this guy. I talk to Moses face to face. He knows me. So why aren't you afraid coming up on my boy like that? That would have been fun to watch. I bet they'd have been like, oh, we didn't really mean that. That was just taken out of context or something, Facebook. I got to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's full on defending him. But what he's saying, though, is he says, look, Moses and I communicate differently than you guys do. And then there were rabbinical teachings that developed out of that as the years went by where they would say that people learn of God through mirrors. We have different things that reflect God to us that we learn, and they might be visions or they might be the scriptures that have been given us so that we can learn of who God is. But, but our understanding, as Paul says, we see through a mirror dimly. We don't tend to know as much as we like to think that we know. But when we see him face to face, we'll know completely. And I'll let you guys in on a secret, man. Look, I study the Bible a lot, and even these scholars and people that I learn from, seminary professors, all of these guys, there are so many people that build massive ministries or you write books, things like that on premises, that when it all boils down to it on some things, I'll just be honest with you, there's a lot of times where theologians are making educated guesses. It's just true. It's just true. It's been said before regarding like our, our view of end times as Christians. Like how are things going to play out in the end when Jesus comes back? I've heard people say that the first 15 minutes in heaven is going to be dead silent so that we can all fix our charts. I thought it was going to be this. I got to change because that didn't go down like that at all. And I, all of this kind of stuff. But it's amazing how we can come in. Like I'll reach back to one we've talked about a lot, the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, how we today can get together in a gym in Medford, Oregon, and could argue back and forth, no, I am right, and here's why. Well, they've been debating this thing for 500 years, and there's never been that, oh, we finally solved it. There's no more argument, anyone. There are interpretations, and we don't always see things the same way, and we don't always see things clearly. And so we need to be careful, church, of getting to a place where we feel like our education, our knowledge of the Bible has ascended to a level that no one else has reached. And to start to think that we're spiritual now, God loves us now, we've, we've, become the, we've achieved the rank of super Christian because we understand the word better than anybody. Paul's like, don't do that. I'm writing the New Testament. I know in part. That's what he says. I know in part. Now look, don't misunderstand me. We can know God. Amen? We can know God. The scriptures are the revelation of God. We can know God. But, but if I can put it to you like this, there was a season, I don't know how long it was, Bronwyn, what, eight, nine months maybe, where she lived here in Oregon and I lived in North Carolina. And we were doing the long distance, relate. we're like one of the few that actually that works. And, uh, and during that time, we were writing letters back and forth. You kids don't even know, like handwritten letters and buying stamps and things like that and cards and all that stuff. And I was like a guy's guy, athlete, wanted it, you know, all this stuff, but I'm buying cards. Like, oh, I love you so much. You know, all that kind of stuff that we all did it. We all did it. And I'm sending these letters off. So I, Bronwyn and I, for a, a good period of time, we got to know each other through letters and through phone calls really expensive phone calls. You guys remember long distance bills, parents? Really expensive phone calls. And so I, I can remember, and it was great. I mean, it was great to go to the mailbox and find that you had a letter from your girlfriend, find you had a letter. Some of you guys have experienced that, and that is awesome. And, and you get excited, oh, I got a letter. And, but as great as that was, it was nothing like being with her in person, Right? I mean, if I was with her in person, I'm not going to go, I'm glad we're hanging out, but I'm going to go check the mailbox. I'd be like, forget the mailbox, I'm here. And I'm enjoying her now, face to face, and we get to know each other now in a totally different way. And it was completely different. And, and some of you guys, man, Paul says in here, he says, look, then when Jesus comes, we will know even as we are known. Now that's interesting because... Like, some of you guys I've known for a long time. Some of you guys have been here at Heritage even from the beginning. We've known each other for a long time. Um, some of you I've known even longer than that. Some of you, our relationships predate this church. There's people in here that used to serve with me in the children's ministry um, 15 years ago at, up at Applegate, years ago. 
Um, some of us, we've traveled together for a long time. Others of us in this room maybe even don't know each other as long as that, but we've spent time together. We've vacationed together. We've shared meals together. We've walked through difficult seasons of life together, and we've really gotten to know one another. But no one in here, no one in here knows me like my wife does. Like nobody knows you like your spouse does, those of you who are married. Like the, the things that no one else would know. But let's be honest though, our spouses don't completely know us. I mean, especially those younger in marriage, it's very rare that you find that kind of relationship where even early on, every little nook and cranny, all of the embarrassments of life, the things that might bring you shame or guilt or embarrassment, there's always those kinds of secrets that we hold back, those kinds of doubts and fears that we have that we have to wrestle through. But God knows us, all of us. God knows all of them. The scriptures say that he knows the hairs on our head. He knows how many, that's how intimately he knows you. That not just in you, he knows the hairs upon your head, which is a way of saying there's nothing he missed. The smallest little detail, every single one of those God knows. Now, when I was a kid, there was nothing more frightening than that. Oh, no. And I can remember as a kid laying in bed at night, literally sitting there trying to think, what do I need to, if I should die before I wake? Remember that? And literally, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times as a child, laying in bed going, what else did I do? Because if I didn't repent of it, I thought I was going to be, I, actually, I thought it was going to be on the big screen. You know the big screen? And you had that thought before that, that when you go to heaven, your whole life plays out on a big screen, which I always thought was kind of lame. Like, we just lived it, now we've got to watch it. Uh, but with an audience. But God knows all of those things and yet has chosen you with enthusiasm as we looked at Wednesday night. That he would know those things about you and choose you with joy. And you go, well, how do I know that? How do I know he chose me with joy? Look, who, look what he went through to have you. Look at the burden he carried on his shoulders on the cross for your sake. He didn't have to do any of that. And he knew every one of those tiny little details, every step of the way to the cross, and he did it willingly. Why? For the joy set before him, is what the scripture says. He knows everything about you, and he delights in you. He is pleased with you. He's not frustrated with you or exhausted by you. He knows you, and he loves you. And even in those weaknesses, that's why he came. Amen for that? That's good news. But that's how we're going to know one day. Right now, we don't know God that way. We can know him, but we don't know him. We don't know everything, and we ought not claim that we do. Just this week, there's a dear saint, a part of our church, that I would encourage you guys, please be praying for, um, for Ruby Cook and her husband, Billy. Some of you guys know Ruby. Um, Ruby is just a sweet lady. And um, she, some of you guys have had interactions with her and didn't even know it because she's often wearing the pink jacket at Rogue Valley Hospital. She's one of the, the auxiliary volunteers there helping people find rooms and all this stuff. Just the sweetest lady in the world. And uh, Ruby's husband, Ruby's not been serving in that role for a while and hasn't been here lately because her husband has cancer. And uh, just last week or the week before, um, they made the determination we need to stop chemotherapy. Um, his body can't hold it. In fact, some of the side effects from it were starting to play out to the point that Billy, his name's Billy, um, even in moving him, they discovered that his body was so weakened by chemotherapy that his back was broken. And so he's laying in a hospital bed now, and he's so frail. I, I, he's the most frail person I've ever seen in the hospital before. I have to honestly say that. The last time they were able to weigh him, he weighed something around 69 pounds. And uh, if he's 50 now, that's good. And uh, so he's, he's been in and out. He, he's on morphine drip now, and it says no dosage limit, which if you're in the medical field, you know that means they just want to keep him out of pain and let what happens, happens. And, um, and he woke up. And uh, they, he actually told Ruby that he wanted to see me. So I went over to the hospital, and, and I got to go talk with, with her and with Billy. And um, Ruby took me out of the hospital room, and she was kind of giving me the heads up on, okay, here's what's been going on before you start talking with him. Here's what's going on. She said, um, and yesterday, he's in and out, but yesterday he was awake, and the nurse was there. And he asked the nurse, 
am I dying? And the nurse said, yeah, Billy. And that was the first time he realized it. And he didn't really say anything. He just kind of processed it. And so she wanted me to know that. And so I went inside and I'm there talking with Billy and talking with her and anointed him with oil and praying for him and, and everything. And, and Billy, it was, it's a struggle even for him to talk right now. He's really, really weak. But I asked him, I said, so Billy, are you okay? Do you need anything? He said, no. In fact, it's kind of a funny story. He told one of the nurses, they were like, is there anything I can get you? And it's at that point, is there anything I can get you? And his answer, he goes, I would really love one more time to taste a beer. And they snuck him a beer into the hospital last night. And let me tell you, if you're judging that right now, shame on you. Okay, I'm just going to say that. But they, they snuck him a beer and let him have a little taste. He goes, oh, that's good. But, but Billy's laying there. I'm just asking him, like, Billy, are you okay? He said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, uh, are you hurting? He said, no. I said, um, are you afraid? And he said, no. And then I got ready to go on and talk, and he sort of stopped me for a second, and, and he was... He was thinking. He'll, he'll have these long pauses and he, thinking before he can speak. And, and Ruby noticed it. You know how that is. I mean, speaking of husbands and wives knowing each other that no one else was, he, he asked this question that I could barely understand. But, and it was only a couple of words, but Ruby knew what he was asking. And, and Ruby said, what he's asking is why. Why? Why am I going through this? Why does it have to end like this? Why do I have this whole life of, of vitality and why do I end like this? Why is it ending now? Why is this happening like this? That was his question. I'll tell you guys, I have never wanted to have an answer to a question so bad in my life. But the honest truth is, I don't know. I could give him now a theological answer and I could come in like, I know, here's why, and I could preach at him if I wanted to. Or I could do the other end of it, and I could do the faith thing, because your faith is weak, Billy. Your faith is weak. People believe that. But the reality of it is, in this specific case, in this specific instance, the way he's going out like that right now, why? I don't fully know. All I know is that even the glass that God has given us into his character says, Billy, that he loves you. And even if you don't win this battle, he's going to fix you eternally. And you want that more than you want this. He just shook his head. Just shook his head. And there's a place for us to just admit that we don't have all the answers, but that we know the God who does. And that we want to grow, we want to mature, we want to make our way closer and closer to God into his heart. We want to know him better. But, man, I warn us, don't get caught up in our knowledge. Oh, I'm so spiritual because I know everything. You don't know everything like you think you do. You don't. And frankly, it was the desire for knowledge. It got Adam and Eve in, the trouble, in trouble to begin with. We should take that as a little bit of a warning. And we should just faith in God instead. But we also don't go the other way and start looking at, well, if you would just pray hard enough, if you just had the faith, if you just, those aren't hallmarks of a true Christian. Those are temporary gifts God has given the church to manifest the body of Jesus Christ, but they're not hallmarks of who we are. When he's going to go into speaking in tongues, God has made donkeys talk before. So don't point at that as like, look how special I am. And look how Paul finishes this up. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is a powerful statement for us to understand. He says, there's three things to consider. Faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Look, the gifts aren't going to last forever. The prophecy's not going to last forever. They're not intended to. They're shadows of a greater reality, the person of Jesus Christ who's coming. But then the Christian road markers, if you will, of every Christian, signs, things that every Christian has are these three things right here. Every true believer convert in Jesus Christ has these three things, faith, hope, and love. And, and not just based off of this, though it's a pretty strong statement. These things, these three. And, but Paul uses this theme in several other letters. In, for example, we have in uh, Colossians 1. Can you guys put the text up here for everybody? In Colossians 1, look what Paul says to the church. We thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. He says, I thank God you have heard the word of truth, the gospel. How do I know that? Because I see your faith, your love, and your hope. He does it again in 1 Thessalonians. Can you go to the next one? We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and our Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do I know that he's chosen you, brothers? I see your faith, I see your hope, and I see your love. Really important. These are hallmarkers that every Christian has. I'm not sure you can be saved without them. What he says here is, number one, a Christian has faith. Not just a, I believe in God in the same way some people go, I, have, I believe in aliens or I believe in Bigfoot. But faith meaning he is our trust. Our trust and our hope is put in him. There's an old hymn that says, my faith has found a resting place. Not in device or creed. I trust the ever living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's what a Christian is. A Christian says, my gifts, my talents, my abilities, my knowledge of scripture, none of those things in the end matter. It is the fact that Jesus Christ paid the price for me. He is my righteousness and my, all my faith is in him. When I walk up to those theoretical pearly gates and they say, why can you come in here? I'm not gonna point to my gifts. I'm not gonna point to the scripture I have memorized. I'm not gonna point to the good things I did. I'm gonna point to Jesus Christ and I'm gonna say, because he died for me. My faith is in him. He's my ticket in. That's faith. Every Christian has to have that. The second one is hope. Hope is assurance of the life to come. Hope is the belief that it's going to get better, that there is a work coming, that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and that he is coming again. And look, I have seen people, unbelievers, die without hope. And it's not a pleasant thing to see. Oh, I've seen unbelievers before. No, I'm not afraid when there's some sort of pumped up bravado. But in reality, there can't possibly be any assurance as to what happens after that. But I've seen believers die in such peace and such confidence because their hope is in Jesus Christ. The reality of heaven is a very major component of our faith. But the last one is the most important one. This is faith, hope, great. But the greatest of these is love. Church, listen closely. He talks about the spiritual gifts. Those are here. They're important. They're temporary. He talks about faith, hope, and love. But he says the greatest of these is love. Because think about it. Even faith and hope is temporary, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Faith. Our faith is in Jesus. But the scripture even talks about the day when our faith is made sight. And hope, our hope is heaven. We're here now. That hope's different now. But love is the one thing that's going to continue. Love is the one thing that is going to last clear through eternity. Love is the thing that we as a church should strive to have more and more and more. And not just a love in general. We're not just talking about warm and fuzzy. But remember, in this context, we're talking love for the brothers in the church and then love for the world the way Christ had it. That we would realize I have been saved by grace. My faith is in him. My hope is in heaven. And I love God's people. And I love people that don't know God yet because he does too. This idea that people can say, I love Jesus. I just hate the church. Knock it off with that. You come up to me and say, Jeff, I love you, but I hate Bronwyn. You're not going to love me long. I'll promise you that right now. The church is the bride of Christ. And we need... We need to love the church and the people in it. Yeah, but they get on my nerves. I know, because we're not done yet. Because we're not perfect. Because God is growing us. But the benchmark for Christian maturity is in the love that we have one for another and then the love that we show to the community around us. That's it. That's the one. Paul says all these other things are awesome, but in the end, the love of Christ is the one that never fails. The love that we have for one another. You want to measure your spirituality heritage? Are you loving one another? Are you forgiving one another? Are you pressing in with one another? That's Christian maturity. That's how you become spiritual, if you will. But you cannot give that love until you've received that love. 
If you haven't experienced the love of Christ in your own life, the forgiveness for sin that he offers, then you, you have no shot at this. This kind of love is a love that is experienced, that is received before it is given. Amen? Will you guys stand with me? Sam's gonna come up. He's gonna close us in, a, in, in one, one run through a, a song here about the love of God, but I just wanna take a moment. Will you guys just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If there's anyone here, and I hope there's not, but if there's anyone here that has not experienced the love, grace, and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and wants to, man, today is your day, bro. You've got to do that. You will not get into heaven because you're a good guy. You will not get into heaven because you memorized Bible verses or you went to VBS as a kid or, or, or any of those things. That None of that will play out. Those things will not last into eternity. The only thing that will give you assurance when you are like Billy laying in your deathbed that you can die without fear is in the knowledge that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that your faith and hope is in him. Nothing else will do. Nothing. So you cannot leave this place without that assurance. But that assurance is absolutely available. And so right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, and people praying, I just want to ask, if you're here and you've never experienced that, but you want to, just raise your hand for me, would you? Is there anyone here that says, I want to be sure? Anyone at all? Do not leave this place. You don't have assurance that a tomorrow even exists, but we have assurance that our Savior will be with us no matter what. Anyone else? For the rest of us here, Heritage, and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So I want to challenge us, man, as a church. Actually, that's not even true. God's word challenges us as a church that if we want to advance and mature in our spirituality, the thing to press in on is are we growing in the love of Jesus Christ? May the characteristics shown us in 1 Corinthians 13 be shown by us as a church to an increasing degree day in and day out. And God, we come to you even right now and ask you for that grace. Lord, may you grow us in that way. Will you bless us by your spirit with an increasing capacity to love you, to serve you, to love others. God, may we be quick to show forgiveness to others because you are so quick to forgive us. God, may we be quick to extend kindness because your kindness has saved us. Lord, help us to be more patient, more humble, just to love your people and those outside the church to a greater and greater degree. Not because we want to be known as loving people, but that people might see what a loving God you are. And Lord, we know this is true because we've experienced your love. So Lord, even right now as we close and sing this last song, Lord, declaring the love you have for us, we just worship you and praise you for the gift of salvation that you've given us. Thank you for your love. May we understand it and grow in it more and more every day. Let's sing together.